0: This paid podcast is a partnership between Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Century 21, this is The Relentless, a podcast about looking at sales differently. As entrepreneurs, we need to constantly evolve, refresh our approach, and these days, that means prioritizing the customer. Because sales is about so much more than transactions. It's about elevating experiences. I'm Kristen Meinzer. I'm an author, entrepreneur, and podcast host. And no matter what job I've had, I've always used my voice to help people. I learned early on that treating people like they matter isn't just the right thing to do. It also makes for good business and great relationships. And that's what this season is all about. We're talking to the visionaries reinventing hospitality and the pioneers who figured out how to create celebrations that don't feel like work. Because The Relentless is about more than the clothes. It's about opening our minds to new possibilities and crushing mediocrity every step of the way. It's time to dream big, embrace change, and stay relentless. Hi everyone and welcome to The Relentless we're living through a time of tremendous change. New technologies are disrupting old industries, and the skills and expertise we need to stay ahead of the game, well, they keep changing too. That's why it's more important than ever for people to take charge of their knowledge through lifelong learning. As the economy keeps changing, continuous learning is the only way for individuals to stay competitive and for entrepreneurs to stay relevant. My first guest today has lived through some of the biggest changes in tech and has transformed himself and his career over and over again. Along the way, he's helped countless others do the same.
1: My name is Guy Kawasaki. I am chief evangelist of Canva and the creator of the Remarkable People podcast. In a prior life, I was chief evangelist of Apple on the board of trustees of Wikipedia and a Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador. Wow.
0: Every single brand I use every single day, you've had a role in. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy rich Asians. (laughs) While he was getting his MBA in the late 1970s, Guy Kawasaki worked in the jewelry business. Then he bought his first computer and his life changed. In 1983, Guy got a job as an evangelist at Apple. As an evangelist, Guy went out and spread the word about a great new product Apple was developing, the Macintosh computer. Since then, Guy Kawasaki has started his own companies, worked for tech giants, written 15 books, and learned to surf. He's currently evangelizing for Canva, a do-it-yourself graphic design business. Guy is also the host of a podcast called Remarkable People, where he interviews guests like Angela Duckworth and Martha Stewart. Guy Kawasaki, welcome to The Relentless. Aloha. Now, you have done so many things in your career. And I got to say, starting out in the jewelry business, it does not scream future tech entrepreneur. How did you get from that to working at Apple?
1: Yeah, no... Uh, you you can't say that my arc of life was pre-thought. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here here's the nutshell of the story. So I went to school at Stanford. I graduated uh, like many other Asian-Americans in that time. Your parents wanted you to be a doctor, lawyer, or dentist. And I took a course at Stanford where you went on rounds at the Stanford Hospital. And on the first day, I fainted. So that kind of <laughs> took doctor off the list. And then I figured, well, you know, do you want to stick your hand in people's mouths for the rest of your life? So no. So that took dentists off the list. So what was left was law. My father was a state senator in Hawaii, never gone to college. So it was his dream that his son go to college and become a lawyer. So I went to law school. But then I went to law school for two weeks and I hated it. So I dropped out. And... You know, eventually I entered the MBA program at UCLA, and business was really what I wanted to do. And while I was in the MBA program at UCLA, it was a four day a week program, and I'm not from a wealthy family, so I had to work and I got a job counting diamonds in a jewelry company. So one would think, oh, guy, you know, it's not exactly the path to uh, fame and wealth. But in the jewelry business, and we manufactured jewelry, so we sold it to retailers. It was hand-to-hand combat selling. It was calling on stores, being kept waiting, being rejected, you know, all the stuff that happens to true salespeople. And that was a great lesson. And it helped me as an evangelist in the Macintosh division. It helped me for the rest of my career.
0: Well, how did you end up in that Macintosh world? I mean, there's a big difference between fine jewelry and computers, right?
1: A little bit, yes. Yes. So when I was at Stanford, my roommate was a real tech genius kind of guy, uh, not a nerd though, and so uh, we were very good friends, and so he recruited me into Apple, uh, and this is a person who had a background in psychology as a major, and <laughs> and jewelry as his only sort of work experience. So, the long and the short of it, if you really want to know how I got into Apple and tech is nepotism. Ah! It was it was because I was best friends with this guy.
0: I wish more people would just own up to that. I really do <laughs> because I feel like so many of us get our foot in the door because of being in the right place at the right time and yeah. importantly, knowing the right people. And I don't, feel like eno- I don't feel like enough of us own up to that. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I'm proud of that.
1: And, but the lesson that I learned, and I think the lesson that people should take away from this, is that it doesn't really matter how you get your job, whether it's nepotism or merit or just luck. But what really matters is what you do once you're in the job. And that, you know, on the second day, it didn't really matter that I was this guy's good friend. It also doesn't matter at an extreme if you have a Harvard MBA. So, you know, once you're in, it's up to you. It's not because of your pedigree.
0: Yeah, but once you're in, at least in the company that you got into, I imagine you'd have to know about computer science. <laughs> and and well, you said yeah. your background was <laughs> psychology and diamonds. So, did you have a lot of catching up to do? How did you catch up with all that?
1: I had a lot of catching up to do, but I have a fast chip. So, I, <laughs> it, it took a lot of it took a lot of. You have to understand that I had a very technical position, not in the sense that I was writing code, but I had to convince programmers to adopt a new platform. And so there is, you know, you can't be totally non-technical and stupid, but it is fundamentally a sales and marketing and evangelism job as opposed to writing code kind of job. So I don't want to overblow my technical expertise (laughs) because that would be a lie, but I had to be at least conversant a little in technology. And my friend helped me along so that You know, I fooled a lot of people for a long time.
0: (laughs) A lot of people thought I was more
1: technical (laughs) than I was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And lifelong learning is part of your personal life, too. I know for a fact, because I've done some research on you, that you don't think you're ever too old to learn something. You learn to surf at an age where most people are just laying on the beach, for example. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that you've done this with more than one sport. (laughs) Yeah, well, I took up ice hockey
1: at 44 because my two kids expressed an interest in ice hockey. So coming from Hawaii, there was not a lot of hockey in my background, (laughs) (laughs) i.e. none. And so I took up ice hockey at 44 and I became obsessed with ice hockey. And then at age 60, I discovered surfing. And so surfing has replaced ice hockey. I've moved to Santa Cruz to be closer to the water. And literally, when I hang up from this, I'm going to go surfing. So I surf almost every day, sometimes twice a day. And I just love surfing. Now, I'm never going to be a great surfer. I never was a great hockey player, but I'm as good a surfer as... You could be starting at 60. Let me put it to you that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And you love it. I do. Yeah, and that's the important thing. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that sense of love because I also want to ask you about enchantment, which is the title of one of your books, which yes. is really about love and getting people to have a change of heart. Yeah. Can you give me an example of how enchantment works in the entrepreneurial space?
1: So enchantment really has a few sort of cornerstones. So one is you have to be likable because it's very difficult to enchant people if you're not likable. Duh. So that's, you know, and likability, it starts really, well, pre-pandemic anyway, with a good handshake, believe it or not. It's looking people in the eye. It's defaulting to yes, yes meaning that you're always thinking how you can help other people as opposed to how can I say no because this person might use me. Uh, so that's one cornerstone is likability. Second thing is trustworthiness uh, because it's very hard to enchant people if they don't trust you. And the third thing is just competence uh, because you know incompetent people... <laughs> are not enchanting. (laughs) So you have to work on your likability, your trustworthiness, and your competence. And if you do those three things, you'll be enchanting.
0: Well, can you maybe give an example of how that would work in the business space? Because I can imagine that very well in my personal life. Like I'm at a party and am I being enchanting with people? Am I being likable? Am I accepting people for who they are? But what about for entrepreneurs? What are some steps entrepreneurs can take to enchant their customers?
1: Well, I don't, you know, I I don't see where it's very different. <laughs> I mean, basically, an entrepreneur is always selling, right? So now you, you may think that there's some products and services that are so great that you don't have to sell, that it just moves off the shelf. And you would be delusional about that. <laughs> there's no such thing. So it is always about selling. And people like to buy from people that have enchanted them. And you enchant your customer by being likable, trustworthy, and competent. Competence in this sense means that you have a great product or service. For I would say that price is way down the list in terms of uh, enchanting people or making them into customers. So if you if you are trustworthy, likable, and competent, that's almost the whole battle.
0: You sound like you know exactly how to treat people and how to treat customers. Can you can you share a story of when you as <laughs> never a never customer... believe
1: everything you hear?
0: <laughs> can you share a story of when you were treated especially well as a customer? Uh,
1: I believe that there's a karmic scoreboard in the sky, and so if you treat people well, you will also be treated well. You know, if you watch people how they interact with retail sales clerks, how they interact with waiters and waitresses how they interact with flight attendants. Uh, that is a very good test for what kind of character that person is. And so I just returned from Hawaii and I put my bag on the scale. It definitely said overweight, but <laughs> they didn't even bring up charging me extra. Uh, so it's it's those kinds of little things that, I don't know, that just makes life easier. Mm.
0: There are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are so busy on the product or focusing all their time and energy maybe on things that aren't about the people, that aren't about, you know, the customer experience. Um, What would you say to them about, you know, learning about how to be better with their customers?
1: Well, I would say that a very important skill for an entrepreneur is empathy. And without empathy, you're kind of stuck. And I recently interviewed for my podcast a gentleman named Martin Lindstrom, and he told me this great story. So one of his clients was a large uh, pharmaceutical company, and the executives of this company said, "You, know, we need to understand our customers better. We need to be closer. We need to, you know et cetera, et cetera. They are convinced that they need to get closer to the customer, empathize more, et cetera, et cetera. So what Martin Lindstrom did is he put them in a room and he gave them all a straw, and he made them breathe through the straw. And of course, some executives immediately freaked out that, you know, why are you making us do this? It's very difficult to do, blah, blah, blah. And his response was, well, you know, you have patients who have asthma. You have asthma medicine. This is what it's like to have asthma. That's a very good illustration.
0: Wow. That is such a great way to teach empathy and to continue the learning, to keep the learning going and to teach us to be, um, I don't know, not just better entrepreneurs or salespeople, but just better people. Yeah. Now, Guy, with everything you have going on, I got to ask you, How do you find time to even acquire new knowledge and skills? You have so much going on uh, with your work, with your entrepreneurship, uh, with your surfing, with everything else you're doing. (laughs) How do you find the time to acquire knowledge and skills? Well, um,
1: to be quite honest, I am a very lucky person. Mm. So I am lucky that I was born in Hawaii, Uh, in the United States, where there is freedom, where there is the ability to progress. I was born into a family that highly valued education. I was born into a family that sacrificed for my education. I was fortunate in that some college advisor at Iolani School in Honolulu, Hawaii, told me to apply for Stanford. I did. I didn't have any SAT tutors. I didn't have any writing buddy writing my essays. I literally, I don't know how I got into Stanford. A lot of my life is because of my parents and their parents and right place, right time. And lots of things fell into place for me that just worked out.
0: Mm. Well, I like to think that the harder we work to be good people, the more things... Uh, work out. So I hope so. I hope so too. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't I'm, think luck is a hundred percent just luck. I think sometimes the no, luck yeah. is something that we make. Right. Well, you that know, karmic scoreboard as, you mentioned earlier. Right. <laughs> well,
1: uh, as the Chinese say, you have to stand by the side of a river a long time before the roast duck will fly into your mouth. <laughs>
0: Guy Kawasaki, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Well, you know, I have to say that I listen to a lot of podcasts and everybody says at the end, it's such a pleasure. But this really was a pleasure.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) It's been a pleasure for me. I feel like I could have talked with you for two more hours. You exude joy and it's such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you. I am so inspired by the way Guy fearlessly faces new challenges, whether that's starting a new company or learning how to surf. When life presented a new opportunity to my next guest, he dove right in. Dylan DeBrain moved from South Africa to Iowa on a college swimming scholarship. Once in Iowa, a mentor at Dylan's church convinced him to stay and to get his real estate license. Now, Dylan is an owner of Century Twenty One Signature Real Estate, a growing brokerage with nine offices in central Iowa. As an owner, Dylan's focus is on training new agents to deliver exceptional experiences to their clients every step of the way. Dylan, welcome to The Relentless.
2: Thanks, Kristen. Good to be here with you.
0: Now, I'm a Midwesterner, so I know the appeal, but I'm curious. How did you go from being a South African on a swimming scholarship to working in real estate in Iowa.
2: And I wish there was some beautiful story that was like a master plan and I really had it all figured out. It just happened. I'd never grown up understanding the entrepreneurial world or um, the value creation space is what I call it. And uh, so it just happened that I, I knew a guy, and he owned a small brokerage, and he gave me an internship, and I needed money. So I started managing some apartments. Uh, so there was no, no master plan. He twisted my arm to get my license, and it turned out I was really good at real estate sales. And uh, grew a small team, married a, a girl from northeast Iowa, and uh, I'm still here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> an internship is a time of learning and, you know, uh, learning the ropes, learning about the business, just learning basic work skills. What are some of the things that you remember learning during that time?
2: The, I think the truth is I wasn't learning then. I, I think I was a prideful uh, young man that thought he had all the answers. And uh, I just wanted to make money and do whatever I did well. So the story is I, I started selling real estate in that small brokerage. I eventually left that team and started, started my own brokerage. I was encouraged by my new business partner to pick up a few books. And I'd always had a passion for philosophy and theology and learning. I always, I always wanted to understand why things were the way they were. But somewhere in my head, I didn't think that reading business books was a worthwhile endeavor. And it was actually Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People was the first book I read. Um,
0: oh, and, I love uh, that book.
2: Well, and I, I think it's where everyone, you know, it's, it's the first book I had my son read because um, he's got a little bit of my tenacity. And I think that was a turning point for me in, in realizing, hold on, like there's answers to the questions that I'm not even asking yet. And that was probably where my hunger for learning in the business space uh, it really was ignited.
0: Mm. And from that point onward, what what were some of the big lessons that you learned?
2: I, I learned that all opportunity lies on the other side of value creation. And that in this country, um, if you want to go do something good, uh, you can get whatever you want out of this system. You just have to first focus on others. I, I read a book once from an old a coach of ours, actually, that uh, it's called What What You Want. And the whole thesis was, it's actually okay. Stop apologizing for the things that you're working for. Like, it's okay to want whatever it is. Just recognize that if you want to get it, the path to getting there probably involves creating value for others. If you Mm -hmm. can figure out how to solve other people's problems and create value for them, um, people will gladly pay you for that. So Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot. I could keep going, but uh, (laughs) I think that's the big ones, right?
0: Well, those are important lessons. And I'm curious about how you go about training new agents as they come in. How do you get them to do these things you're talking about, to focus on the customer instead of you know stressing out about the sale, about how to help solve the customer's problems rather than you know, trying to only focus on the bottom line? How, how do you get them into that mindset?
2: Yeah, and I wish I could say that everybody can get into that mindset. I, I think in, in raising people to have a mindset that's about others or the client experience... It's just a forever conversation. So every week at our team meetings, every week at our Connect meetings, which is our new agent training, constantly in our uh, just video stuff that we do, we're just constantly beating the same drum, uh, which is, yeah, all opportunity lies on the other side of value creation. The customer is uh, always going to win at the end. And we've got to wake up in the morning and be obsessed with them and their outcomes. Mm. And if we do that, we get to get the things we want.
0: So these lessons are not one and done with your team. Week after week, you're imparting lifelong learning on them to make sure that this is just part of their mindset, part of the way you do business.
2: Well, maybe it's the distinction between learning something or knowing something and engaging in a lifelong practice of executing on it. Um, Mm. I'm actually a big fan of yoga. I practice yoga several days a week with my wife, and it's a similar thing. There's no pose you need to learn that's going to solve your problems, but there is a practice of engaging in, uh, in this journey of growth and learning and, um, and then executing on it as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a forever conversation inside of our walls. It's a, it's a forever conversation inside of my house. Uh, we have uh, weekly family meetings every Sunday night. Mm. The kids love and hate them. But uh, every Sunday we gather as a family and we talk about the week and what worked and what didn't and what things we're working on the next week. And uh, it's just just a a commitment to always be looking forward and backwards, figuring out what worked, what didn't, and what we need to do differently.
0: Mm. I want to talk with you a little bit more about process. What are some ways that focusing on process can help Uh, agents stay customer focused
2: there are certain things that are going to come up in every transaction and the more we can wake up in the morning be obsessed with the customer and the feelings and the emotions and the the concerns and the troubles that we can anticipate they're going to have and pre-plan communication and explanation and process into the journey the more when crazy stuff comes up that we weren't anticipating, we can actually have the space to focus our attention and our time on that. We have something called a front stage audit in our company where we um, we actually map out the entire client journey as a buyer or a seller. We do a front stage audit for our company as well. And we, we all the major benchmarks of where a customer derives value. So it might be the showing, it might be the inspection, it might be walking into the office we audit the ideal experience that we would want the customer to feel. And the word is feel. And then we ask what's working, what's not working and what we could implement. Just one thing that would improve the way the customer feels in that section of the customer journey. And we do that every six months, basically throughout the various stages of the client experience, both for our agents and our our clients. And I think that's, that's basically just getting out of doing real estate, into looking at the journey and systematizing a process of improving the experience in an ongoing way. And it's, it's constantly changing because the world's changing, the market's changing, COVID happens.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, I, you know, for me, part of the stepping stone or the first part of the process is to build the space into our daily routine or yearly routine to audit uh our processes if that makes any sense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's a great answer. It is. But you know, problems are still gonna come up no matter what. Can you yes. tell me a story about a time when something went really wrong and that created an opportunity for exceptional service?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a daily thing, Kristen. It's um again, we're in the business of problem solving. You can take it down to the small ones, uh, clients with inspection problems that are blowing up. But I want to be figuring out what can we learn from this experience so that on the next go around, we can foresee this problem before it happens or provide better solutions to the problem when it happens. And I think that's just an attitude or a mindset of viewing problems, not as problems, but as learning opportunities. Um, and so there's a million of them every day, but i I, I feel like getting into the specifics of them sometimes is missing the point, because if we're trying to like find a templated response for for every problem that's going to come up with, we've missed we've missed the real point of our value. Our value is that there's going to be problems that come up that no one sold for before. And leaders and uh, trusted advisors, are able to find creative solutions for those for their customers by creating a lifelong journey of learning, which is really our our topic here. And so I think it starts with a mindset.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought it back around to lifelong learning because I'm imagining you've had some learning to do over the past year and a half or even longer with the changing pace of real estate. I mean, I'm not just talking about the pandemic, but you know, technology changes, our communication styles change, and so on over time. So can you share some of the things that you've learned or that you want to make sure your team learns with the changing landscape of your industry?
2: Yeah, the world got a lot smaller, didn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh,
2: the pace of the market, I think, is is not a temporary shift. I, I think that We're in a new normal now of real estate. And so I think we lived in a world where properties got listed. Then for a period of time, they went online and then people looked at them. And eventually there was an offer. This reality where we're selling properties before they ever even hit the market, I think it's going to be several years before that changes. And so our agents have had to adapt. And so we've had to learn to make sales happen um, in ways that really weren't part of the business model before. And a significant portion of our sales, and I think a lot of brokerages sales now, um, are just matchmaking. We're finding buyers, stuff that's not even listed yet, and mm-hmm. putting putting sales together for our customers. Because we can't rely on the old system that was really structured to um, accommodate a very different market environment. Mm.
0: It seems to me that... The secret sauce here is that you're open-minded, that you're open to learning new things. You're open to, even if you have, you know, certain structures in place, you're open to going outside those structures if you need to. But how do you get people to actually adopt that mindset? Because I have to say, I've noticed that in the past year and a half, not everybody seems as willing or able to, you know, be open to all these changes. How, how do you impart that?
2: Yeah, well, first you got to walk the walk. I well, uh, walk the talk. I, I we constantly work to lead by example. Um, again, a culture and environment of constantly speaking about this rather than what everybody else is inclined to speak about. And, and again, I would say, Kristen, like not everybody wants to get on that boat. And so I think a big part of this is surrounding yourself with people who are like minded and who have growth mindsets, we call it abundance mindsets, that the distinction you're talking about, we call it scarcity versus abundance. And I always wanna try to pull people out of scarcity. There's not enough, like I've gotta compete, what if somebody does this, into abundance, which is, yeah, there's plenty to go around. We just gotta find a way to actually care about the client more than other people. So I I think you've gotta be willing to go do what needs to be done, regardless of who wants to come along with you, and then find the ones who do want to come along and then go make something beautiful like go actually care about people and go produce a better product than everybody else mm-hmm. and you don't have to tear anybody's building down to do that just go build your own mm-hmm. and i think when you approach the day and the problems that way it makes uh, it just makes it all a lot more fun mm-hmm. and i think you get better results
0: <laughs> wow I got to say here, I am so impressed with how open you are to trying new things, to learning new things, but we haven't really touched yet on the way that um, you're not just doing this for yourself. You have something called the More Than More Initiative. Um, Can you tell us more about that and the idea behind More Than More? Where, Where that
2: started was, it was several years ago, and Every year, if you're in real estate, you know this. If you sell a certain amount of real estate in any given year, then the next year, your goal is to sell slightly more than that. And we actually have agents that after several years, they start to kind of panic. They're walking down the hallway. They've had their best year ever. And you're like, hey, great job. And they go, yeah, I'm just nervous. Like, I don't know how I can possibly beat this next year. And we saw something broken in that. And, uh, you know, we've never been just about selling houses. We're about helping people build businesses that can go and impact and improve the lives of others. So the more and more thing was several years ago, we actually just set out to start telling stories inside the walls of our organization of people who were, through real estate, leveraging both the revenue, but also the freedom that they've built out of this industry to go and do more than just sell more houses. Um, We've got so many cool stories. We've got guys who have started athletic programs to help kids get scholarships. We've got uh, a thrift store here in town that one of our agents launched that sells a ridiculous amount of stuff and all of the proceeds go towards nonprofits. Kids who have uh, been adopted into family, just beautiful stories of people using what real estate can provide to make a dent in the universe. So Mm. that's more than more.
0: I just think it's so beautiful how you are encouraging your team to go out there and make good things happen in your community because so much of being a real estate agent is also being a member of the community. You're not just selling houses, you're selling a space in this world, a space where people live, where they hope, where they dream, where they go about their daily lives. And so I just think it's beautiful that you're doing that.
2: Well, we're in the people business. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dylan. Thanks so much for being on The Relentless.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Now I've got to go actually make sure I'm living up to all that stuff, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Century 21 Real Estate. You can find out more about the guests you heard in today's show and discover more great material from our Century 21 partners at slate.com slash C21 Relentless. I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thank you so much for listening, and please join us next time. All rights reserved. Nothing herein is intended to create an employment relationship. Century 21 Real Estate LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion.